We're taught at a young age about problem solving. Remember this in school. There's a problem and you try to solve it. So in life, there's a problem with your car, you take it somewhere, you try to solve it. There's a problem with your body, you wanna go to a doctor, someone who knows what they're talking about, you wanna solve it. A lot of the New Testament begins with problems And it's not that the goal is to solve all the problems, but it's try to work out what it means to be the church in the midst of the problems churches were facing. There are two specific books in the New Testament that don't begin with problems and then try to work out what it means to live life in the midst of them. Instead, they they, they begin with answers. So it's not the problem and then try to solve it or then try to answer it or try to think through it. It's let's begin with the answer and what we know to be true and then we will work from there. One is the book of Colossians, and the other is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews doesn't begin with, here's what's going on in the life of the church, and here's the issues that need to be fixed, or here's what you're struggling with, so let's talk about the Bible and God and try to figure out what it means to live. Instead, it, it begins with, here's the answer, and it sounds so elementary, and it's a churchy answer, but the answer is Jesus The mission of this church is helping people see Jesus. The vision of this church is we want to be about the restoration of God in the world, which is a return to life. So I invite you, I'm going to have a lot of stuff to say this morning and and laying a foundation for the book of Hebrews. I invite you to take notes. I invite you to write in your Bible. And I want to begin with a few passages in the book of Hebrews that tells you about Jesus. So as I, these come up on the screen, as I read them, you can find them in your Bible. It's just a few pages of Hebrews. It's not a lot. You can find them, circle them, feel free to amen, shake your head in agreement that this is who Jesus was and it's who Jesus is. Hebrews 2, 17. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he is without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 7, 25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 9, 27, 28, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So before I go any further, will you bow your heads? Close your eyes. If you want to open your hands where you are, just receive from God this morning. Open your hands and let's pray. God, through your spirit, work in the lives of the people in this room and the church here to help us to devote our attention, our affections, our allegiances in the direction of Jesus. Will you recreate out of the chaos of our lives And my prayer this morning is not that I will be spectacular, but that I will be faithful and that we will point to the one who is. 
Jesus, you are above all. You are in all. You are through all. You are around all. You are, are all in all. So help us to devote and redevote our confession to Jesus today, that you are Lord and nothing else is. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The author of Hebrews has a lot to say about Jesus. In fact, if you'll see this next image here, just some of the images the author of Hebrews works with when it comes to Jesus. He's pulling from the Bible. The author is pulling from different images and things that people are experiencing in everyday life. Athletic images, images of hiking, of, of journeying. So you have that Jesus is the firstborn. He's a pioneer of salvation, the anchor for your soul, the forerunner on our behalf, a mediator of a new covenant, pioneer and perfecter of faith. Now, it's the first sermon of 12 weeks. And I always take the first sermon really seriously because I'm trying to lay a foundation that we can build on. And I know this isn't just like a TV show that if the pilot goes bad, that you won't come back for 12 weeks. At least I hope that's not how it goes. But I think most of you know, like when it comes to a show, how vitally important the pilot episode is to the show. If you don't got a good pilot... You may not make it. A, a TV company may not pick you up. Now, we also have stayed in shows before, even though the pilot may have been bad, because we've told our friends, hey, it's the, the TV show starts out really slow, but it picks up midway through the first season, so you want to hang on. But in the first episode, the pilot, you want to show a little drama. You need some character development. You need a hook to keep people, in, to keep people engaged. So I'm trying to, to preach this morning in a way that will hook you, to keep you coming back. And not just coming back to hear sermons, but so we as a church over the next 12 weeks will live with an anticipation that if we as a church dive into the word of God together and push each other to focus on Jesus, that God's going to move among us and do things that we could never ask or imagine. So some of you have trouble with Hebrews. A lot of people do. If you were to ask people, how many of you like one of your first, like your top three favorite books in the Bible, the book of Hebrews, very few people say Hebrews is one of their favorites. Most people point to an Ephesians or a James or one of the Gospels because you know you need to include Jesus in your life and things like that. But not too many people say Hebrews. Hebrews is a challenge for people. It's often described as a puzzle that's very difficult to piece together. There are parts of Hebrews we love and then parts of Hebrews we get hung up in because we don't know what's happening. It's going back through blood sacrifices and who's Melchizedek. Like the Bible hardly talks about this person. It's an author who takes like liberty when it comes to even how the author interprets the rest of the Bible. So it can be a challenge. So let's start just with authorship. Because whenever we read a book in life, we want to know who the author is. If people recommend a book to me, I want to know who the author is. I often will research the author before I, before I read the book. And you do this probably more than you realize. Just shout out to me. Who wrote The Lord of the Rings? Anybody? Tolkien. All right. Who wrote Harry Potter? Anybody? Yes. Yeah, J.K. Rowling. Uh, uh, who wrote the books that make every person, man, woman, all generations cry? Terry Miller, you got it. Uh, Nicholas Sparks, he got it. All right. So, uh, so we often know authors. But here's the, here's the problem. Here's the challenge with Hebrews, okay? We don't know who the author is. You don't know. Uh, 13 different names have been argued for 2,000 years. A lot of people just say, okay, when in doubt in the New Testament, we'll just go with Paul. Paul wrote it. But you have church fathers even said things like, well, Paul wrote it, but we really don't know who wrote it. I like what one person says. They said this when it comes to authorship of Hebrews. Hebrews was written by a Christian for Christians to help them appreciate the salvation that is theirs in Christ. 
Let's talk about the audience for a minute. Because we want to know, like, who's this book written to? Maybe that'll help us interpret it and come to know it better. And the problem with Hebrews is we don't know who it's written to either. A lot of the New Testament will say things like, I'm writing this to the churches of Ephesus or the churches of Rome or Colossae or the the areas throughout Asia. Hebrews, we don't know. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know who it's to. So I'm asking you to give me five to ten minutes to try to explain to you why I think this book is so important. Not just for the early church, but because it was important to them in certain kind of ways, I think this is one of the most applicable, practical, helpful books for us today. So journey with me just for a moment. Imagine if you were an early Christian. So Jesus came around AD 30 is when Jesus died, rose from the grave, and ascended into the heavens. Imagine if you lived around Rome. Now, even if you didn't live in Rome or you didn't live in Jerusalem, whatever happened in Rome and Jerusalem in the first century had a major impact on your life. So imagine you were a Jewish Christian in Rome. You're a Jew who's come and you have surrendered your life to Jesus and now you're following in the ways of Jesus. And around AD 49 hits, so 20 years um, after Jesus has ascended into the heavens, AD 49 hits, Emperor Claudius wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He's mad. He wants to find somebody to be mad at. So he kicks all the Jews out of Rome. So now there's social dislocation. If you're kicked out of a city in AD 49... You don't have a phone to call family members in other cities to see if you can come live with them. You don't have the internet to see if you can find a job or to find an Airbnb or a hotel to stay in. There's social dislocation. And this could have a problem for generations to come. It could cause all kind of anxiety for the heart, mind, body, and soul. So imagine just getting kicked out of a city. Now, we've seen this happen in cities. I mean, there used to be a term like inner city that we would use, but it's not really a term we use anymore because what's happened now in a lot of urban settings is the poor have been moved out of inner, set, inner city settings. And now there's like a horseshoe all around Memphis and other places where the poor have been dispersed and there's often social dislocation. Research shows that when families are forced to move or they have to move out of a location and there's an issue with transportation and kids have to change schools, every time a child has to change schools in a school year, It sets them back six months in education. Social dislocation is a real thing. This is why Republicans and Democrats struggle with what do we do with DACA and Dreamers? Because they're people who've been in America almost all their lives. And if we send them somewhere else, they're going to a place that's not their home. They hardly have any connections there. In my neighborhood, it seems like every few months that we drive down a street and someone's been evicted. And I know all kind of circumstances can go into that. But here's somebody who's been removed from their home. There's dislocation. So imagine this happened to you and your family around AD 49. Kicked out of Rome. Where your family, your job, like your life was. Five years go by and you're invited back into Rome. And then it seemed like for 10 years there was a period of peace. That Rome didn't care if you followed Jesus as long as you didn't try to make everyone around you follow Jesus. There was a time of peace. But then AD 64 came. And there was a fire that broke out in the city of Rome. It was a fire that spread for six days. It started in the area called the Great Circus. It's where there were a lot of shops and a lot of slums. It was a busy, heavily, uh, people were there all the time. It broke out in a fire. The way fires work, we've seen this in California. You've seen this now in the Amazon, is that flames have the ability to like jump over things and start fires in other places. So the fire that started in the Great Circus jumped over a road and set a whole neighborhood, a whole district on fire where senators lived 
lived. It's where the people in Rome who had power and who had influence, their neighborhood began to burn. It burned for six days. They thought they had it under control. Because imagine a fire breaking out in a time where there are no fire trucks, there are no fire hydrants. Six days went by, they thought they had it under control. It broke out again. It raged for two weeks. In Rome, there were 14 districts. We'll call them neighborhoods. Of the 14 neighborhoods, only four were not impacted by the fire. Of the 14 neighborhoods, three were completely destroyed. So within a matter of like overnight, within a couple of weeks, there were around a million people who lived in Rome. Now 700,000 people were homeless like overnight. Imagine Shelby County, around a million people, and a fire breaks out and takes out like almost every neighborhood, and 700,000 people don't have a place to call home. So where was Emperor Nero when the fire broke out? The dude was on vacation. He, had, he took his private jet to Cabo, and then Disney, and then Graceland, all right, or something like that. He's hanging out somewhere, sipping on who knows what, having a good time. Emperor Nero comes back to Rome. And he begins to act in ways that he thought was gracious and very generous. He set up temporary housing for people. You can call them tent cities, refugee camps. He tried to set up places for people to live. He had grain brought in from other places and reduced the price. So he's basically giving away food. And he immediately, he sets in motion urban development. And so he's, he's, and it's on the government's dollar. He's spending their money to rebuild things, to clean up debris. He has a team that's taking care and repaving roads. And, and so, so people can get around. So roads and parks are being cared for. And so he's doing all this so people will love and respect him. But the people weren't, like they weren't given, like, like his popularity points weren't soaring. Because a large majority of people believe Nero started the fire. They believe he started the fire because their people have become a little complacent. All right, there we go. <clears throat> uh, pe- people were growing complacent. So I think Nero thought if I can start a fire and destroy some things, and then show people that I can care for them, then they'll give their allegiance to me. The people weren't buying it. So when they weren't buying it, Nero needed someone to blame it on. So Nero blamed Christians. He blamed this whole fire on the followers of Christus, on Christ. So then you have in the mid-60s in Rome where Christians were being burned on on big poles and and they're dying in the arena. And it's not like systematic persecution and that it wasn't that Emperor Nero said, hey, we're just going to go wipe out Christians. It's that we're going to persecute them enough to where everybody knows if you mess with Rome or you're saying up against Rome, there will be great consequences. Imagine if you were a second-generation Christian. And you had lived through social dislocation around AD 49 where you had been kicked out and you came back in. And imagine if a decade goes by and you thought there was peace and now a fire breaks out and Christians were blamed for it even though they didn't do it and persecution broke out. And now they're second, maybe third generations thinking, what's this following Jesus going to do for me and my kids? And then AD 70 hits where if you're a Jewish Christian... You weren't relying on the temple to be the place where the presence of God dwelled anymore, but the temple meant so much to the story of God. And now in 8070, the temple is destroyed. So there seems to be a progression of some social dislocation and then some persecution. 
And then, like, this, this impact on, like, every facet of life. And I think this is why you have places like Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, that says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We sang the song earlier, I'm no longer a slave to fear. And I lump in my throat because I heard us singing, yet I know how many of us live just that way. And not that we're hypocrites when we sing it, but we're making a confession where we want to live into. I don't think any of us want to be a, a slave to a fear of death or a slave to fear just in itself. But let me ask you this. If you were second or third generation Christian living in Rome or around Rome, and this had been what had happened to you over time. When it came to the mid-60s or 80s, 70, let me, would you still go to church? Would you still walk to a place where you're going into a home to meet with people who were Christians? If you did, would you still sing the songs in a time where windows weren't soundproof, and singing could come, and people from the streets could know what you were singing. Would you pray the prayers that you see in the book of Acts that God would fill you with boldness to go out into the city and to help other people know about Jesus, knowing that your life could be on the line? So, and I know this is the struggle with Hebrews because they're backsliding in their faith a little bit. And most of you, most of us live in a time where even though we feel like there's some persecution coming against Christians, in the United States, we really don't have the kind of persecution the first century culture had. We're not being burned at the stake. Our lives aren't on the line. There's not a lot of social dislocation happening because we wear the name Jesus. So how do we connect with a book like Hebrews? In Hebrews 10, 32, it says this. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. You'll be richly rewarded. He reminds him of verse 32. You remember those days. You remember when we first experienced the light. And most people, when you surrendered your life to Jesus in the very beginning, you had a time. You had, maybe it was days, maybe it was weeks, maybe for you it lasted months or a couple of years where there was a burning passion in your life that I'm surrendering my life to Jesus and I want to live for Jesus and whatever I do, I want other people to come to know Jesus through me. But at some point, the passion seemed to fade. And here's where I think Hebrews connects with us today. Because the challenges for Hebrews, it wasn't that they stopped like believing in who God was. I don't think the church in Hebrews that this is written to, I don't think they're sitting back and that they're doubting that God created the world or that God saved people in the Exodus or that God sent Jesus. I think what they are asking is, is this life of following Jesus, is it worth it? Is living a life devoted to the cause of Christ is it worth it? Am I going to live devoted to the cause? So the challenge they faced is, do they continue life as passive believers or as active believers? Wanting the destination, but not wanting the life. In Hebrews 12, 4, it says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
The many think the author is writing to people who them, for that church there, that they weren't, it wasn't to the point where they're being persecuted, physically persecuted. But the way you read Hebrews 12, 4 is that that day may, it may come. And right before that in Hebrews 12, 1 and 3, it's therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. And for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The church there, they were growing weary and holding on to and sustaining a confession in a social climate that was hostile to their presence. And this is happening for some of us today, right? Like you, many of you have businesses where you know that you can go in and you can be a Christian, but you're asked not to share your faith in that workplace. That happened in the first century too. But what happens for so many of us, for so many churches, especially in the Western world in America, is we've come to believe in a faith that we want the benefits and we want the eternity in heaven. But most of us will live our lives having never shared the gospel with one person around us. Without ever asking God to fill us with courage and boldness to see what difference Jesus can make in the world. For the Jews, for many people, they think in Hebrews, these Jews are backsliding into Judaism. So they're going back to Judaism, and I'm I'm sure some of that's true, but I think it's broader than that. Tom Long says this. I think he's right on. He said, the preacher in Hebrews is not preaching into a vacuum. He's addressing a real and urgent pastoral problem, one that seems astonishing contemporary. His congregation is exhausted. They're tired. Tired of serving the world, tired of worship, tired of Christian education, tired of being peculiar, peculiar and whispered about in society, tired of the spiritual struggle, tired of trying to keep their prayer life going, tired even of Jesus. Their hands droop and their knees are weak. Attendance is down at church. They're losing confidence. The threat to this congregation is not that they are charging off in the wrong direction. They do not have enough energy to charge off anywhere. The threat here is that worn down and worn out, they will drop their end of the rope and drift away. Tired of walking the walk, many of them are considering taking a walk, leaving the community and falling away from the faith. Jace Thompson says this, Hebrews speaks to churches that face rejection from the larger society, declining numbers, and the distance between faith they proclaim and the reality of actual experience. Is it worth it? In Hebrews 10, 12, and 13, it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. All right, so here's, here's a challenge. I think the book of Hebrews has this, and some of us do too. It's been described to me as the eye-ear gap. That what we hear with our ears is not what we see with our eyes. And I think the book of Hebrews, the people were struggling with this, and some of you do too. Let me see if I can make sense of this. For some of us, we hear with our ear that Jesus is reigning over all things. But when we look with our eye, all we see is what seems to be the progression of evil. We hear about the promises of God, yet we don't see as the promises coming to fruition. We hear about staying connected to God gives you the peace that passes all understanding, but what you see with your eyes is nothing but chaos and stress. 
that we hear with our ear that in Jesus there is an ending joy, yet some of you with your eye, you don't remember the last time you saw a period of joy in your life. There's the eye-ear gap. So through the book of Hebrews, what you hear a lot is that God spoke and God is still speaking and the word of God is coming into your life. Yet with their eye, what they see seems to be something different. So they just drift away. It's not that their theology is bad. It's not that their doctrine is wrong. It's just that they drift away. Have you ever been at a lake or an ocean where you get in a tube or you're out on a raft and you just lose yourself and how restful it is? And then when you look, you just drifted out to sea or you drifted out to a lake and you're further from the shore you thought you were. Just drifted away. Um, Rarely do I stand on a stage and make a claim that I am the best at something, but there is something in the life of the church I'm the best at. Um, when it comes to the game Mario Kart, I'm the best, all right? I'm the best in my family. Nobody, they don't got getting out. This is like the Super Nintendo or the Wii when it comes to Mario Kart. I, I'm the man, all right? Now, the newer one, Noah can take me out. Truett can every once in a while. When Truett, Noah, and I are struggling Mario Kart, we play Casey because we know we got a victory in that one, all right? Uh, I, I, it's like a major this in college. A bunch of my friends, we would play Mario Kart like eight hours a day. I mean, it was, and somehow I did get an education. Now, when it comes to playing Mario Kart, here's how it goes. You pick your person. So you pick Mario, Luigi, Yoshi, Bowser, Donkey Kong. For me, I like running and going with Yoshi, maybe Bowser every once in a while. And after you choose your character, you choose what car you want. You choose what vehicle you're going to race in. And you choose your vehicle based on a few things. You can choose your vehicle based on speed. You can choose a vehicle based on acceleration. You can choose a vehicle or uh, best on handling. So you have items in Mario Kart that you throw at people or you lay behind you and things like that. Uh, and, And certain characters handle them better than others. But when it comes to me, I never choose a car based on speed or acceleration or handling. I choose a car based on how it drifts. And what that means is that when you're turning a corner, if you don't have a vehicle that drifts well, then you lose control. You'll go bang into the side. You'll come to a complete stop, and then you have to start over. But if you have a vehicle that's good at drifting, you never have to let off the accelerator in the entire race. What it means is when you hit a banana peel, you don't come to a complete stop. It's you can drift, and you can remain under control. Now, this is going to be something that doesn't stick with some of you. It may stick with others. When it comes to life and the spiritual life, there is a way that when we begin to drift, we can drift in a way where we still have a foundation and we're staying daily. Daily, we are staying true to our confession. We're staying connected to the church and other people who keep us rooted and our foundation strong that when we begin to drift, a trigger goes off and we realize it so we don't spin out of control and bang into a wall and have to start all over, but we're able to get back on our feet or in our vehicle, and continue on a road with God. Some of you are drifting right now, and you are drifting to a point where you think you have gone so wide, or if you lost your center, and you don't know how to give back, and some of you are drifting, and you think, well, I'm drifting, but at least I'm close enough where I can holler for safety, and today needs to be a wake-up call for you. No drifting. Stay true to the center. 
Hebrews 10.39 is going to be something we come back to often, that we are not of those people who shrink back. We're those who stay connected to Jesus and to each other, and therefore we are saved. The people in the book of Hebrews had lost their confidence and their conviction because they were living for the where, and they had forgotten about the why. They wanted the eternal destiny, but they had forgotten the why of staying devoted to Jesus each and every day. They wanted the eternal gift, but not daily commitment. The destination, but not the life. Heaven, but not Jesus. Eternal destiny, but not discipleship. To appease God, not to pursue God. So here are three things we're going to talk about over the next 12 weeks. That when it comes to the book of Hebrews and how he equips the church, here are three things. Number one, the book of Hebrews equips the church to stay uh, fix our attention and fix our eyes on Jesus. And you're going to see this over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Don't lose your focus. Stay f- fixed on Jesus. Your attention, your affections, your allegiances. Number two is there's such thing as responsible listening because God is speaking. So throughout Hebrews, you have places. And next week, we'll, we'll look at Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There's Hebrews 4, verse 12, that for the word of God is alive and active. For many of us, what we did in our churches is we, the way we interpreted that was the word of God is written and active. It says the word of God is alive and active. That God is still speaking in and through his word and in ways that corresponds with the word. And when God does speak, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, it judges it, thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It performs. And the last thing, and this is so important to the book of Hebrews, and it's something we have lost in our culture today, is that Hebrews equips the church to not neglect how essential the church is to spiritual vitality. Most people I know who've walked away from faith, it wasn't because one night they watched a Netflix documentary on creation theories or Hitchens or something like that. And slowly they just drifted away. And most people I know who've drifted away from God have drifted away from the church. And those who drift away from the church have drifted away from God. And Hebrews isn't talking about staying connected to the body and staying connected to church so that you're checking the boxes. It's you're staying connected to the church because we serve one another to help our eyes stay fixed on Jesus and focused on Jesus so that we do not drift away and we do not shrink back, but we stay committed to the cause for the sake of the world. So how was that for a pilot this morning? And I invite you into the book of Hebrews. And this morning, I invite you into God. That for those in the room who've never made a confession before that Jesus is the Lord of your life, that you will take seriously what it means to give a confession to someone who is greater and someone who's the Savior of all, the creator of the world. And for some of you, it may be a day or a season where you need to renew your confession, renew your calling, what it means to follow Jesus. So I ask today for the elders and prayer leaders to surround this room. We're here for you. If there's anything we can do for you, pray over you, a blessing we can speak over you. In the room this morning, you'll see prayer leaders and elders going to certain places to receive you. We're going to sing a song, and I invite you to go find one of these men or women. Let's stand together.